0: Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. Uh, we're going to continue in this series. We started this series last week. We're going to be in it. I have no clue how long. I haven't counted it out, haven't mapped it all out. I'm sure nearly all, if not all, of 2023. But we're calling the series, I Am Coming Soon, the book of Revelation. And you'll be learning why I call it that, because I am, his name is Jesus. He's coming soon. And that's what the whole book of Revelation is about and so if you brought your Bible, open to Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 4 through 8 of Revelation 1 is where we're going to be. A series or a message I'm calling the Alpha and the Omega is coming. I heard it said that the book of Revelation, about the book of Revelation, it's hard to understand, but it's impossible to forget. And I would have to agree with that. That once you understand the book of Revelation, it is something that you will never will forget. And it's not an accident that this book is at the end of our Bible. Because it really puts a divine bow on the fit 65 books that came before it. It gathers everything together and it brings it into one final ultimate conclusion. I mean, there are 404 verses in this book that we're studying. 360 of those verses are allusions to or direct quotes from the Old Testament. So everything that's said in this book, the book of Revelation, it really comes for the most part for the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, this is just me talking. This is my opinion. But it nearly seems to me like the book of Revelation, it's a cliff note book on all the prophecy found in the Old Testament. Someone has said that the, that, that the book of, Re- of Genesis and the book of Revelation are really two bookends for our Bibles. That really they holds the entire Bible together. Because in Genesis, you have the story of the beginning of human sin. And in Revelation, you see the end of it recounted. And Genesis is the beginning of civilization history. And in Revelation, is the end of both of them. In Genesis, you learn about the beginning of the judgment of God upon mankind. In Revelation, you see the end of them both. So these two books, Genesis and Revelation, they really belong together. There's so many great themes of Scripture brought into one final focus in the book of Revelation. I mean, you could spend a lifetime studying books like Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah, and others but those four books alone are really a lifetime of study as all culminated nicely in the book of revelation let's read beginning in verse one of, of revelation one this is what we studied last week but it says the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servant the things that must soon take place The Apostle John starts out telling us exactly what the book of Revelation is. Because he says that this is a revelation. The word revelation in the Greek is apocalypse. It really means an unveiling. John means this book is going to take away that which used to be obscure. Meaning he's going to make everything very clear that used to be unclear. That if you were confused when you studied Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah, and other, if you were unclear when you read those things, it's about to be made crystal clear in case there was any confusion. Not only is this book an unveiling, but John said to, that the reader, he said, is blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So so why is this book a blessing to somebody? Well, the word blessed means happy. So why would this book make you happy? Because you're going to know how things end in the end. You know, I'm not a horror film guy. I don't really like that genre. Back B.C. John, before I knew Christ, I would watch some. And, And there's a film that was quite terrifying. Maybe you've seen it. If you haven't, I'm not recommending it. Don't watch it. But it's called Silence of the Lambs. That was a terrifying movie, Right. Well, don't watch it in case you haven't seen it. But if I did have to go and watch it again, I wouldn't get scared because I know exactly what happens to Jodie Foster's character, Clarice Starling, at the end of that movie, right? Well, life is terrifying. And in fact, it's about to get a whole lot more terrifying, more terrifying than it's ever been in the history of time. Well, the book of Revelation is going to explain to you how it's all going to end. So we shouldn't be terrified. But please let me warn you not to only read this book. I could see how someone could hear what I'm saying and then, well, let's just study the book of Revelation. We're going to forget everything else and just say this. But I would say don't do that. because For one reason, this book is guided by all the other books that came before it. Also, if you start with the book of Revelation, I think the only thing that could possibly happen is you're more confused than you could ever possibly be. Whenever I talk to somebody that hasn't read the Bible before, I I usually suggest starting either with the gospel of John or the gospel of Mark. And I suggest the gospel of John because John wants us to know the deity of Christ, that Jesus is, was, and always will be God. And so if you don't know who Jesus is, really nothing else matters. So that's why I usually say start with the gospel of John or I say the gospel of Mark just because in my opinion, the gospel of Mark is the easiest of all the gospels to understand. But I couldn't imagine suggesting to anybody that he start with the book of Revelation. Because that sounds like a good way to get lost real quick, if it's just my opinion there. But the author of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John. The the real author is God, and he is dictating to John. He's showing this vision that he's to write down what he sees. But it's important to know the, the who who John is writing this letter to? And really, that's true for all the books of the Bible. If you know the who, when, where, what, why, how of each of the, the Bible books of the Bible, you're going to be so much better equipped to understand what we should know when reading these, these letters. Well, who is John writing to? He tells us. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Most theologians date this book anywhere from 90, 90 to 96 AD. And it's the Apostle John who's writing this letter to the seven churches that are in Asia. God's got something that he wants to say to the seven churches in Asia. In the coming weeks, we'll spend one week every Sunday, every, just looking at one church, what they said for the total of seven Sundays. And then we're going to see what God said, and then we're going to uh, see how that applies to us here at Cross Point Baptist Church. You see, Christ has something to say to these churches that are in Asia. And Asia is modern, essentially modern-day Turkey. And, and John writes this, he just refers to himself as John. So it's, re, it's referring that he's very well-known during this time. But I want you to know these seven churches, they're real churches. I don't believe these are fictional churches. I don't believe the seven churches are allegory to anything else. But these are seven churches that existed. They had pastors. And they met together for worship and the reading and study of God's word. And we're going to find out in the coming weeks that some of these churches got some things right. And some of these churches got some things wrong. And and then some of them got some things terribly wrong. And what we're going to do is, this is really where the application for us begins. Because there are some things we need to make sure that we get right as a church. There's also some things that we make, need to make sure we never get wrong. But I think this is really easy to think about in theory. And it's far more difficult to do in reality. And why do I say that? Because there's something true for all of mankind, even people in the church. And That's one of pride. And how pride typically manifests itself is what we do is we think that everybody else is getting it wrong, but we're the only ones that are getting it right. We even do this in the church. So what we're going to do in the coming weeks, we're going to read about these seven churches. We're going to look what they got right and got wrong. And then we're going to try to do the right things right. And we're going to make sure that we never do the wrong things at all. And John says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. When a Jew greets you, if you're walking the streets of Jerusalem and you're to meet a Jew, they would typically say shalom, which means peace. And if you're walking the streets of some other city and you're to meet a Greek, they would typically say charis, or that's the word grace. But here John says charis and shalom. So John is greeting everybody, both Jew and Greek. Why is that important? Because God's church is not a church for a particular race of people. But it is rather for whoever shall call on the name of the Lord. Christianity is not for a chosen group of people, but it's for, for every tribe, every nation, every tongue. The, Christianity is for everyone. And the first person mentioned here in John's greeting is Yahweh. Who's called him who was and, excuse me, who is and who was and who is to come. If we we're to go back in our Bibles, go all the way back to the book of Exodus, we could read about Moses and how God called Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And if you know the stories found in Exodus chapter 3, Moses then starts, starts talking to God. He's dialoguing with God and says, Well, hey, you know, if I go to the people and say, Hey, tell Pharaoh, let my people go, they're gonna wanna know which God are you? Because after all, they're in Egypt, there's a pantheon of different gods. There's the rat god and the cockroach god. And then you name the god, they have a god for that. But if you're the real god, who are you? What is your name? God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. We don't get this when reading read English, but if you're reading Hebrew, it makes so much more sense. In Hebrew, he's saying, I am the God who is and was and is to come. Notice all three tenses, past, present, and future this is the all-encompassing God that's here for you right here, right now. The real God is not some abstract thought that we're trying to wrap our mind around. He's not some nebulous that's floating out in space and then we have to come together and, and try to figure out who he is. No. He's a real individual that's for you here in the present. And then John's grace, is far, his grace and peace, is far more elaborate than any other greeting found in the Bible, because John says from the seven spirits are before his throne. So John's greeting here in the book of Revelation is Trinitarian in nature. Uh, the, it's Trinitarian because the seven spirits is understood as the Holy Spirit. And it's hard enough for us to understand how God can be Father, Son, and Spirit. All three are distinct from each other, yet still one God. No less difficult is how to understand that the seven spirits spoken of here in the book of Revelation is the Holy Spirit. It's the number seven that really shines a light on that for us. It's God's number of perfection. It's totality. It's, it's God's number saying it's It's finished. The the number seven is prominent everywhere in scripture from Revelation all the way through the book of Revelation, but very, very prominent in the book of Revelation. So John mentioned the father, he mentioned the spirit, and the last person referred to in John's greeting here is the son. Usually we think of the Holy Spirit coming last, but perhaps this is written to emphasize who the father is, that that's why he comes first and what the son did last. These are three, and there's three distinct titles that John gives to Jesus here in, in Revelation chapter 1. First, he calls Jesus a faithful witness. And he says that because Jesus was true to the task the Father sent him to, to do, to, to declare the Father, and to die for the sins of, of the world. Jesus came to testify of the Father to the whole world. And the second title is the firstborn of the dead. The word firstborn uh, is the word prototikos in the Greek. And this is where there's a lot of trouble because this is where the cults come together and say, see, the word of God says that, the, that Jesus is firstborn. And since he's born, he cannot be the creator, but he must be created. But this is where they get way off because the word prototikos, it means first best. It means first place. It means before everything. It means the greatest thing that there possibly is. And that can be nothing other than God. And he is from the dead. He's speaking of his resurrection. And because of Jesus's resurrection, it guarantees the believer's resurrection. The third title, it says the ruler of kings of the earth. And this is significant because at this time as John pens this letter, there's a man named Caesar who is said to be ruling this earth. But this is not Caesar who will rule the kings at the end of times. No, this is Jesus who is going to rule. As we go into the book of Revelation, this idea is going to be brought out again and again and again. That when Jesus comes back, he's coming to rule and reign. This is all pointing back to the Davidic covenant that God made with King David. God promised King David that there would come a day when he would rule and reign forever, and this can be fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus is from the line of David. And we must recognize that Jesus isn't ruling the earth right now, he is sovereign. But currently, at this moment, he's not ruling the earth as the ruler of kings. But I promise you this, he will. There's coming a day in the future when Jesus is going to come back. He's going to establish his kingdom. And he's going to rule and reign this earth for a thousand years. Continue reading the middle of verse 5 of Revelation chapter 1. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us. From our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What John's writing right here, it's a doxology. it's a song. It's a song that, that John breaks into when he thinks about what God has done for us. Really, this is a hymn. This is an old Baptist hymn that, that we probably sang a hundred times. Maybe your version of the Bible doesn't say freed, but it says washed. Anybody's Bible says washed? Nobody's okay. Well, there's another, there's some versions say washed. This is the old Baptist, this is where our old Baptist hymn, to Are You Washed in the Blood, came from. Do you know the song? Because the hymn goes, have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you washed in the... Okay, I guess I can't be the worship leader. You're wondering that. I had so much faith in you guys. I'm like, they're going to join in. I was wrong. Didn't wash in. The question... Why did he wash us? What precipitated his washing? He says, to him who loved us and has washed us, it was his love that precipitated his washing. If someone wants to tell you God is sovereign and he is sovereign, but then they will say that the reason why he saves, the reason why he washes is because he's sovereign. But this text and so many other texts tells us that God is motivated by his love. Why would God bother to wash anyone? Because he's a God of love. Now, some want to say that God is love, so he saves or washes everybody. That's not true. He does love everybody and has done everything imaginable so that you might be washed, but you still have to allow him to wash you. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a piece of clothing and got so disgusting you just threw it out? Yeah, maybe you stepped in something a little more disgusting than mud. You're like, okay, this is going in the trash. and I'm going to go ahead and get a new one, right? That's not what Jesus did. He, he didn't throw you out and get another. No, he washed the unwashable. God did not discard that which was vile. He washed it and he washed in the only thing that can cleanse that which is uncleansable. That's the blood of the Son. And I think that worship, that's what John's doing in this moment, is the only proper response when you think what's being said here. But again, notice the order. First he loved, and then he washed. It's not that he washed and then he loved. No, he loved us when we were unwashable. He loved us when we were vile. It was his love that spurred him on to wash us in the first place. And God has washed us from all our sins by the cleansing power of his blood. And that fact, John tells us, made us priests. You see that word there? He says priests. Maybe you don't think of yourself as a priest, but that's something. There's something in Christianity we call the priesthood of the believer. The Roman Catholic Church has wrongfully taught for centuries that there's a special class of individuals that have the right to read and interpret and to teach Scripture. But Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says that everybody that's been washed in the blood of the Lamb is now priests. So all believers have the right to read, interpret, and to apply the teachings of Scripture. So here's our purpose. Because of that fact that the second member of the Trinity came to this earth, died in our place for our sins, since he did that, when you've accepted that, that washes us from our sins and makes us priests. And now that he did all that, it's time for believers to do what they that Jesus died for them to do. Because if the creator God of the universe, his name is Jesus, if he did all that, do you think Christianity is just something we do on Sundays? Monday through Saturday, we live however we want. Then we come to church on Sunday. We gather for an hour and a half, sing songs, hear an interesting speech, and then leave and go back to what we did the other how many hours of the week. I'd say no. This becomes something that we should be at our core. This fact gives us purpose in this life. Not only purpose, but it gives us an identity as well. We are priests, believers. Adopted sons and daughters of the king of kings and lord of lords. You know, there's so many people in our world that are depressed this day because they have no purpose in life. They're trying to find their identity. Let me tell you, this is our identity. This is our very purpose in life. It's to know God. His name is Jesus. To know the love in which he loved us. And to know that he loved us enough to wash us from our sins and then make us priests. So that we'll glorify him with our lives. Most people find their identity in what they do. For example, if you're a surgeon, typically a surgeon will introduce himself, Say, hi, my name is, and I'm a surgeon. Or maybe somebody finds their identity in what they do sexually. That's why the alphabet community is so staunch and being recognized in what they do. And to demand us that recognize them for what they do. But let me tell you, that's not what a believer does. Because it can't last forever. If you're a surgeon, what are you going to do when you get arthritis in your hands and you can no longer perform surgery like you used to do? You see, when you find your identity in what you do, eventually that ability is going to be taken away from you. And then you're going to be nothing without that identity. A believer should never do this. The whole point in sanctification is that a believer will live up to the position that's been given to them. That's the position of a priest. It is is the next life. Not this life. It's the next life. The kingdom that's to come when a believer is going to be a priest in the kingdom of God. This life is getting you ready for what you're going to do for all eternity in the next life. And that's the, the, the job as a priest. So the saved individual, the washed individual, is going to be a priest. That's what we should be doing now, is going to sharing this great news of the gospel with every man, woman, and child in the entire world. It's to bring those who don't know God to God. That's the job of a priest. Keep reading. Read uh, verse 7 of Roman Revelation chapter 1. It says, behold, he's coming With the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Here, John is jumping forward to the second coming. This book that we're studying, the book of Revelation, it's not in chronological order. John wants us to know that Jesus is coming with the clouds. What clouds? There's there's a lot of clouds in the book of Revelation. So what clouds is John talking about? These clouds are the very Shekinah glory of God. If you go back into your Old Testament, you'd read a lot about the Shekinah glory of God. Our Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, it's a very bright light, super bright, or, or cloud with great smoke. Either way is spectacular to behold. It is a visible manifestation of the arrival of God. God, now he is invisible, so no eye has seen him, but we will be able to see him. If we turn in our Bibles, went to Matthew chapter 17 or to Mark chapter 9, that's, that's talking about when Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They went up on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And If you know the story, Jesus' body began to glow. It began to glow as if he had a million watt light bulb underneath his skin. It was so bright that even his clothes began to glow. It was the very Shekinah glory of God. And the only being in the entire universe to have the Shekinah glory of God is God. So thus, yet again, this is telling us that Jesus is God. So what does that mean for us? He's an invisible God, all-knowing, all-powerful. He needs nothing, all self-sufficient. And what does he require of you and me? Faith. He's unlimited. Again, totally self-sufficient. What does he require? Faith. If it had anything to do with works, he'd just do it himself because he can do it better, faster, more accurate than all of us put together. But what does he require? He requires faith. So why am I bringing that up? Because a priestly believer, we don't do what we do because God needs us to. A washed priestly believer does what we do out of faith. One thing that tells us it doesn't matter how well you think you do something, merely that you do them out of faith. I've had people tell me, hey, Pastor John, the reason why I don't share the gospel is because I can't share the gospel as well as someone like you. Well, I spend hours, dozens of hours every week studying God's word, reading what he said. I don't don't know how many mission trips where I've gone and practiced sharing the gospel. Now, I say all this because I promise you, God doesn't care who shares the gospel better, near you. It's all an act of faith. Because when you take what you know, you open your mouth and you share it with somebody, that's what God wants. You give me somebody that understands John 3, 16 and is fully convinced in their mind, and I'll show you someone that God will change the world through. And here in this text, John says, and every eye will see him. Some say this is referring to the rapture, but not every eye is going to see Jesus at the rapture. I, I was thinking about this last week. I mentioned the rapture a bunch of times, but I never explained what the rapture is. I believe the very next major catastrophic event that's coming in in the the timeline of the Bible is the rapture. There's gonna come a nanosecond where all of a sudden, all the believers are gonna disappear off the earth. Is it gonna be during the nighttime, daytime? I don't know, but it's coming. And and typically, I I got saved 19 years ago and I quickly started beginning studying prophecy because it fascinated me. And every time I've studied it, The theologians say there's going to come a moment where all the believers disappear off the earth. There's going to be a bodily resurrection. And I think that's the case because when we see a rapture in our Bible, for example, Elijah in the Old Testament, another example is Jesus at the end of the Gospels and also Acts chapter 1. They're raptured off the earth. Their body disappears. But here's just a little something to think about. What if he just takes our spirit? Then every It would look to, to an unbeliever like all the believers just drop dead all of a sudden. Now, I don't have a clue if that's the way it's going to be. I could very well not not be the case, but just something fun to think about. What that would look like worldwide if all the believers just dropped dead all of a sudden. I mean, that would have had catastrophic events in this country. In other countries, you could probably barely tell that anything happened. And what's stopping that from happening now? Absolutely nothing. It could come tonight. The rapture, is going to come without any signs. But what John's talking about here in Revelation 1, has signs all over it. This is the second coming of God, and every eye is going to see it. It's a physical appearing of the Shekinah glory uh, that's coming with Jesus as he comes. And then John adds on this little parenthetical statement. He says, even those who pierced him. John says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. What John's saying here is Israel's going to see it. They're the ones that pierced Jesus, that hung him to a cross. Israel crucified Jesus, and even Israel's going to see the very Shekinah glory of God when Jesus returns. Let me tell you why John says it like this. Because right now, by and large, not 100% true, but largely true, Israel is not a believer that Jesus is the Messiah. But someday they will. There will come a day when the church is raptured off the face of the earth, and at that moment, the majority of Israel, the scales are going to fall from their eyes, and they're going to see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's what Romans chapter 11 teaches. And Israel's going to go through what's called the tribulation period. This tribulation period is the worst time that's ever seen in the history of mankind. It's a time when two-thirds of the Jews will be executed for their worship of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Today, Israel has a saying, and the saying goes like this, never again. Never again is referring back to Hitler's Holocaust when Adolf Hitler brutally, savagely murdered one-third of the Jews. Now, I say this all fear and intrepidation I could possibly muster, but it's going to happen again. When Adolf Hitler did what he did, he murdered one-third of the Jews. During the tribulation period, two-thirds of the Jews will be murdered. It's going to be twice as bad as Hitler's Holocaust. And this second Holocaust, it will culminate with something called the Battle of Armageddon. And the whole world will have Israel cornered. And they're trying to exterminate the last third of the Jews that are alive at that time. It's all going to happen at the end of a seven-year period called the tribulation period. But what's going to happen? They're going to have Israel cornered. And all of a sudden, the sky is going to split open. And then Jesus is coming back to, work, to rescue his people. This is all a fulfillment of what God told the prophet Zechariah centuries earlier. Read in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. The word says, And I will pour out on the house of David. That's clearly Israel, the Jews. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So then they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Very clearly, Jesus, how could that not be Jesus? And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Here's one thing I want you to know. God's not done with Israel. They are still his chosen people. God's not done with them yet. And the seven years of hell on earth called a tribulation is a purification for God's chosen people, Israel. One reason why I think the church will not go through the tribulation period, why I think the rapture is is a pre-tribulation rapture, because the tribulation is not for the church. It's for Israel. And at the end of the tribulation, Jesus is coming back to save all his people that remained. And did you catch what John said next? John said, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Israel will see him, and the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. What is John talking about there? He means they're going to be crying. Not just crying, but uncontrollably crying. Crying. You see, at this point in history, the Antichrist has convinced all the remaining Gentiles that that coming down on God's chosen people and murdering the Jews, that's what God wants. That's what he's going to wrongly convince them. And so that's what they're doing. In that moment, they're persecuting God's chosen people terribly. And it's all going to culminate in one final scene as Jesus, their Messiah, rescues them. And they're going to be wailing on account of this. And we're going to read this again when we get to Revelation chapter 19. But at that moment, Jesus' white robe is absolutely drenched in blood. Why would his robe be drenched in blood? Because it's all the people that are persecuting his chosen people. God's chosen people have been chosen to rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. Listen to what King David said about this all the way back in Psalms 110. Psalms 110 verse 1. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is what the tribulation period is is to do, is to put all the worldly enemies of God under his footstool. God is saying, you just wait. There's a day coming when I'm going to stomp them out like you can't even imagine. I wish I had vocabulary to really explain this, but I'm sure there's young ears here, so I'm just going to leave this to your imagination. On a side note, I heard that Mel Gibson is is making a sequel to his film Passion to Christ. Um, it was a gr- good movie, uh, good in a terrible way, but I, I think what Gibson got right, the scourging and the crucifixion is probably the most biblically accurate I've ever seen of how brutal it was. Uh, there's a lot that he got wrong throughout that movie, but the crucifixion and the scourging is pretty terrifyingly accurate. And there's a lot of jokes been told about how can anybody make a sequel to the crucifixion of Christ. Let me tell you how you can make a sequel. God's going to make a sequel. The battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ, that is the true sequel. It's the greatest sequel of all times. And I think, I think Gibson's sequel is only going to be the three days in between the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. But the real sequel is the return of Jesus Christ. And I hope somebody hurries up to makes that movie before we're watching with our own eyes. And if you're watching with your own eyes, you're on the wrong side of, of history. You want to be watching it from the back of a white horse as Jesus is coming to rescue his people. The prophet Amos warns those who are looking for the day of the Lord. It's a day, a day of judgment. It's a day of darkness. It's not a day of light. When we consider how horrible this day is for those who aren't ready, I think we need to double down our efforts to to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus as our Savior. Really, we don't have an option because the prophet Ezekiel is told this in the 33rd chapter of of his letter. He's told to be a watchman to warn, reading Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 7. The Word of God says, So you, son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Real quick, this is directed to Ezekiel, to the, the, to the Jews at that time, the house of, of Israel. But I think this applies to us and the unbelievers on this earth now. It says, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall warn them from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak a warning to the wicked to turn from his wicked ways, the wicked person shall die in his iniquities, but his blood I require of your hands. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his wicked ways, and he does not turn from his ways, that person shall surely die in his iniquities. But you have delivered your soul. That's a terrifying verse about our our need for evangelism. Because we are to tell the lost world that the Lord is coming. And if we fail to give them a warning, we're responsible for the death of those who, who have trusted in themselves for their own safety. However, if we proclaim the gospel and they don't listen, we've delivered our souls. And when the Lord returns, everyone will know it. Only 11 saw Jesus ascend back into heaven at his ascension. But here at this moment, every eye will see him. And what does John say about this? Read in Revelation 1 verse 8. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord of hosts, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's at this moment, the book of Revelation, that Jesus takes the microphone, so to speak, Because Jesus has a little something to say here. That he is the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha, that is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. The equivalent in English is, I'm everything A to Z. For those of you that know your Bible, if you go back into into the book of Genesis in the, the Garden of Eden where Satan deceived Eve by saying, you shall be as God, knowing good from evil. What that meant in a moral sense is you shall be like God. It's the same lie that Satan has told time and time and time again. No, Jesus is God. And he's coming back to rule and reign. And he's given people ample time to repent from turn from their wicked ways and trust him. To give our lives to him. After all, he's God. He died so that we could be washed and receive Shalom peace he does the he doesn't take delight in the destruction of people but he's warned people everywhere and he's given people time to repent right now at this very moment satan is ruling this planet have you ever asked hey why is this world so messed up anybody Oh, yeah, we have. Why is this world so messed, so messed up? Why is right called wrong and wrong called right? Why are little girls told they can be little boys? And why are little boys told they can be little girls? And hell have no fury like somebody say, no, that's wrong. Why? Because Satan's ruling this world right now. But it's not going to last forever. Jesus is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he's given people free will. Let me tell you, free will wouldn't be free will unless we had the ability to use free will wrongly. And people say stuff like, well, if there's a God, why doesn't he just come back and stop all this? He's going to. In the meantime, he's given people free will to either accept him or reject him. And in their rejection, they're putting themselves as the alpha. They're putting themselves as the omega. But it's all going to come to a tragic end. Right now, we are on a probationary period. But this period is going to eventually come to an end and then judgment. When Christ comes back, he's going to take David's throne. And the whole earth, he's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. So here's one thing this tells us. For the believer, our destiny is secure. We've been rescued by the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus, at the beginning and the end, he gives eternal life. Because if he gives you eternal life, then you have eternal life. I can't say it any more simply than that. If you place faith in him, if you've been born again, if you've been washed, then you have eternal life. So your destiny is secure. Let me tell you what else this tells us. This gives us perspective. Perspective. Here's the perspective. As bad as this life is, in the next life, it's just going to seem like a bad night in a bad motel. Last year, our wrestling team, we had to take a trip out of town. I'm not going to name the the town we were in, nor am I going to name the motel we stayed at. But it was the most rancid place I've ever stayed in my life. It was horrible. And what happens now, we look back at it and we just laugh. Remember how terrible that was? Oh, (laughs) because it was bad. That's what this life is going to look like in the, in, the, in the light of eternity when you're in heaven. You're going to look back, even if you had a hard life, and you're going to laugh. Because this life's going to be like that one night you stayed in a bad motel. And I say this life is a night in a bad motel if you know Christ. Because if you die not knowing Christ then you'll long for that filthy room in a disgusting motel because where you're going is far worse than that place could ever dream of. But you're not going to be there for one night. You'll be there for all eternity. You know, there's a lot of people that have a hard time trusting in Christ as their Messiah because they have a wrong picture of Christ. They picture a skinny, shriveled up, dying man that hung on a cross. What they fail to see is the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming back in glory to rule and reign the entire universe. I just ask you, have you trusted in that king? Jesus, who is God come in flesh. He's coming back in a glorified body. He's gonna rule and reign the earth for all eternity and then he's gonna make all things new. Have you trusted in that Christ? Have you seen yourself as a sinner? Turn from your wicked ways, trust in Jesus because that's the only way you can be saved. The Bible has this amazing promise that whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Have you trusted in Jesus? Not in your good works, not in what your parents have done, but in who Jesus is and what he did for you in your place. Because there must come that moment in time where you recognize that. You turn from your wicked ways and turn to him. And say, Lord, save me. I'm desperately wicked and I need your salvation.